0: Welcome to season two, episode ten of the Hammer and Quill. We're right in the heart of our mini series on the future of theological training, and you are tuning in, frindo, to uh, our interview with Dr. Reese Byzant, Dean of Missional Theology at Ridley College in Melbourne, Australia. Uh, Reese is a longtime friend of the house. You know, as a matter of fact, we had Reese come and do a. Uh, uh, we've had him come and do multiple sort of conferences and uh, we've had him all here on the Hammer and Quill twice already before this episode season 1 episode 11 uh, where we just kind of kind of a straight up interview with him and then season 2 episode 5 where one of our more uh, one of our most listened to episodes our reflections on the rise and fall of Mars Hill and uh, I'm joined here in the Global Studio Studio with Uh, my partner in...
1: Podcast crime.
0: Ooh. Yeah, we're... (laughs) Season three is going to be a true crime. Yes,
1: be ready, everyone.
0: Podcast. No, with uh, Holly Paulette, We're missing Michael. No Michael today.
1: Hi, Michael. We miss you.
0: But we'll have Michael back next episode. So, Holly... I
1: wish Reese was here. And I wish Michael was here. I always wish Reese was here. Oh, man. I wish Reese
0: was just like constantly with me, helping me know what to do.
1: I wish Reese was just talking to me all the time because uh, I just really love mm. one, all the words that come out of his mouth, but also his, his accent,
0: the way they come out. <laughs> yes, <laughs> That's right.
1: Well, Jesse, I, um, am glad to be here and we came back from Canada in the past, man, what has it been? It's been just a week and a half. We got to go, and um, a group of 22 of us went to the Bow Valley and visited our friends um, Craig and Zoe Robinson at the Cairn uh, Church Plant and also our all of our new friends up in the Bow Valley from the Cairn and the community, and we just had the greatest time. It was so good, wasn't it?
0: It was great, yes, yes. Uh, man, what a what an amazing trip. What an amazing opportunity to take Um so many, across, so many humans across the border. Um, you know what? Relatively unscathed in terms of travel problems. I mean, uh, the only problem we had was sinking a lot of money into yeah. mandatory COVID tests, only to have the the, re- <laughs> the requirement for negative COVID tests lifted by the U.S. government after we hundred eight Seven hundred and eight dollars, but I'm not counting seven hundred dollars <laughs> of uh, non-returnable, non-refundable. Uh. Uh, COVID test. So if anybody out there wants to buy <laughs> a COVID test, it comes with a comp- complimentary uh, just a, like kind Zoom of, meeting with a healthcare person yeah, to verify if you need that. Some, it, yeah. If you need
1: a friend to talk to while well, you do it, because now that's the only purpose. If you just need someone to talk to, it's uh, some virtual testing.
0: Well, but, but it was a great trip. Great <laughs> time great. encouraging the care and spending some time serving them and uh, and being served by them.
1: Yeah. In lieu of our favorite things, what, mm. what were your favorite things from our, our Bow Valley trip?
0: Favorite things, Canada edition. Yeah.
1: A? A. A? Hey,
0: <laughs> I actually didn't hear anybody say, Hey,
1: you know what they, they say like, yeah. At the yeah. end of the, you know, like do you, that was, yeah, that was fun. Like a, yeah? <laughs> yeah. Yeah. <laughs> I felt myself sort of saying it just because I miss them so much. Mm. I just want to sound like them. Mm.
0: Yeah. They do tend to, and this is not just a Canadian thing, but they tend to, um, S- their sentences tend to end uh. as though it's yeah, yeah. a question. Like <laughs> it ends up. It, it's so like, much wait.
1: friendlier than how we yeah, talk. Yeah, it's inviting. Yes.
0: Um, so favorite things Canada edition. Uh, you know, I went out with Craig, Craig, our our dear friend uh, and church planter up there. We went out fishing one day. He drove me. So like, it, it was a bit confusing, disorienting because we're in the Bow Valley. And if you're um, a trout fisherman, you know the Bow River is a like a trophy trout water. People come from all over. We drive right past the, the, <laughs> yes. the Bow River. We we ended up going almost literally almost to Montana, really? like two and a half hours south into this. Wow. So so basically, we went to his favorite place. I think I'm I'm sort of making some <laughs> judgment calls here, but uh, it he was. He seemed to be enjoying. He his seemed time to enjoy it. I enjoyed the place and. Uh, it kind of reminded us of home. So we went to the Canadian Rockies to then drive out of the Rockies <laughs> into the front range where the mountains were more inviting like ours are here in the Blue Ridge Valley. So, yeah, that day would have been a favorite. That We saw we saw a moose mm. and her calf from a distance. Uh, so that was pretty cool. Um, yeah, that, that, would be, that would be one of my favorite things is just that day spent with Craig yeah, driving and driving and driving (laughs) and fishing. And uh, so, yeah, what about you, Holly?
1: I would say there were two things. One thing, um, relationally kind of like how you're talking, um, man, we miss them a lot here. They, they lived here for a while. And so it was just sweet. I brought our two and a half year old, um, to Canada with us and, and she one did awesome, but it was it was so special to parent her alongside Zoe, who is Craig's wife, and they have um, an almost four year old, and they're expecting their second soon. Um, and it was just really sweet to do life with her up there. Um, sometimes I felt like, man, this is different than I would have envisioned a vision trip. You know, I got I didn't get to do some of the things that you guys were doing, um, but. Yeah, just driving around and doing bath time and bedtime and just living life with her was super, super sweet. Um, also, my favorite place on planet Earth.
0: Ooh, let me guess. Yep. Uh, Cascade Pond? You are correct. Pond?
1: Yes. It is. It's my favorite ever.
0: This is in Banff? Yep. Yep.
1: It's in Banff. And the last time that we had gone up to visit them, we went there too and did the same thing. Um, roasted hot dogs over a fire and
0: it's a bit of a magical place it is
1: magical it's so beautiful and there's mountains surrounding this pond which pond is so conservative for what this reflective crystal clear (laughs)
0: lake surrounded by in a bowl basically surrounded by snow-capped mountains yeah. It's a pretty perfect it place. Is.
1: And our team worked so hard all week and it was just really cool to be together in fellowship yeah. around a fire with the Cairn team as well and watching people skip rocks like master rock skippers. Yeah, it shout was out to Ryan
0: Helms Ryan who, Helms. who can skip a rock like <laughs> 400 times. It's, there's, there's rocks still skipping in the <laughs> right now that Ryan threw.
1: It was remarkable to watch, but it just... I went up to the water
0: and I was like, watch this, boys. My, my sons <laughs> were there. And I, I skipped the... I mean, I, I'm not trying to brag, but I, it was really good.
1: I, I don't remember and, it well, compared you to watching. Ryan's. But
0: my boys were like, oh, that's pretty good. Have you seen Ryan? <laughs> <laughs> that's like almost half as good as Ryan's so
1: yeah i mean the little kids could have thrown rocks into that pond pond all day yeah it was it was so fun so anyway i'd
0: I'd say uh it's not a favorite thing my biggest disappointment was that we didn't get to do Mm, nummy knobs which so again this is a zoe robinson thing and by the way um zoe is you know she was your favorite thing basically yes she was And, uh, (laughs) and for good reason and we did we did Actually, have Zoe on the podcast. Yeah, so, it was season an one, amazing episode, episode 25, if you want to go back and listen. Um, yeah, so Zoe, you know, being Canadian and living in Southwest Virginia, <laughs> she introduced us when, when they, Craig was coming through the Bonhoeffer house to this, what I thought was just a straight Canadian right. tradition of nummy right. knobs, um, <laughs> which is where you make basically like biscuit yep. batter yep. dough and you form it around a stick. That you then roast over the fire, so you're cook. You're basically cooking the the biscuit into the shape, into what this sort of concave. Um, it's almost like a when you go to. Um, it's
1: like an ice cream cone of biscuit. That's
0: right. That's right. And then you stuff it full of whatever. Really, uh, I mean, you could do savory things. You could put some like bacon, sausage, <laughs> eggs in there. Meatballs? <laughs> sure, I guess. <laughs> <laughs> I, I don't know. I, I had that's never the first thought, thing of I thought of meatballs, but. <laughs> Um, <laughs> or you can stuff it full of jam yeah, or whipped cream choice. or, oh man. And we didn't get to Nutella. do it. we and didn't get to do it. So,
1: well, here's the best part. We all so confidently went up there talking about nummy knobs because we thought it was a Canadian thing.
0: And the Canadians were like, <laughs> what's that? What mate? are
2: you talking
1: about? <laughs> yeah.
0: Nummy knobs, yeah? <laughs> uh never heard of it no no and it turns out that it's not actually a canadian not thing at all. all it's a zoe's it's a Zoe family thing. thing which
1: she's canadian so she's i guess it's so, canadian yeah so anyway I mean, that was we, disappointing we we were disappointing to the canadians because that was like really one of my only cultural things i could mm, take we up know a there. lot like, about canada yeah nummy knobs right
0: <laughs> oh yeah they say a yep um they eat, they put gravy on the fries yes. and call it poutine, yep. which I did have while I was up did there. Did you? Yeah. I didn't. It, it was not. It, does it was not. gross. It
1: looks disgusting.
0: No offense <laughs> to our Canadian listeners, but um, yeah, it's not like biscuits and gravy, yeah. which is good. Yeah. It's yeah. like a thinner, like brown gravy. Mm-hmm. I don't know. I like guess it's not terrible. It's like, you know, if you have, ma- it makes sense if you have mashed potatoes, right. you put some gravy on it, but. It's Not the same.
1: Yeah, let's let's think about Nummy Knobs instead. But tomorrow is, uh, from the day that we're recording, tomorrow mm. is Canada, Canada day. day. And so our team's gathering Tomorrow's together Canada to do <laughs> Nummy Knobs in America. Mm. Um, it won't be like Cascade Ponds, but it'll be a good good try.
0: That's right. Well, friendos, we are thankful for you listening. And we've got a great interview with Reese about the future theological training. And so we hope you enjoy, and we will see you on the other side. Well, here we are in beautiful Birmingham, Alabama. I'm here with my friend Dr. Reese Bazant. Uh, we're here on a on a little visit, and uh, it's cold here in Alabama. That doesn't seem right, but it but it's true. It's cold here in Alabama in January, and so uh, let's get into it, Reese. We're here to talk about the future of theological training, and so as we get into this interview, uh, in this conversation, would you tell our listeners about your work and your experience in theological training?
2: With great pleasure. <laughs> I teach at Ridley College in Melbourne, Australia. So Ridley College is a theological college, in North American terms, a seminary, and our job is to train people for Christian ministry. I've been been teaching as a faculty member for the last 18 years, so the longest time, it's the longest thing I've done in my life, actually, and it's a magnificent privilege. My heart beats for leadership training. I... I just love doing it, and though you don't see the fruit of your labours very quickly, I trust the Lord that what we teach and how we train people at Ridley will bear great fruit down the line. So I love it. I, I, I teach church history principally, some theology, and Christian worship too. But when people ask me what I do, I say the lectures are a front For something much more seditious, and what I'm really doing through lectures is helping people to learn how to be leaders amongst God's people and and to prepare them for Christian service and not just local churches, probably principally local churches, but through for campus groups or other missions organizations as well.
0: That's interesting. So, 18 years at Ridley College. You mentioned just there that um, you know it's a front and that. Uh, because your heart beats for for leadership development, um, or the develop the development of your leaders that hmm. you're that are entrusted to your your um, oversight and your care, that's something that takes time. That's delayed. Would you speak a little bit more to that? How long does it take before you you go? Okay, I did it with this person. They, yeah, they really have become a good leader.
2: Yeah. So, I think it takes 10 years to train a leader. So... 10 years. Yeah, easily, easily. It took me 10 years to do my seminary training, so... And was there time after that for you to be trained to be a leader?
0: No, by that point, I had figured it out. <laughs> <laughs> the ten years was just right for my for my end. Of, for you, you are the model Divinity. student. <laughs> in no ways am I a model student, <laughs> but um, but just to speak to that, it was it was quite a while, yeah, uh, quite a long training. So keep keep going. Ten years. Well,
2: yeah, I, I figure that first of all, people need to have done some measure of ministry on campus or in their church. And then to have got a taste for it, to start imagining themselves in ministry down the line. And that self-perception is itself quite time-consuming as people learn to wean themselves from seeing themselves as an engineer or something to see themselves in a new kind of situation and then saving up some money and then possibly getting married along the way and then deciding now's the right time to go to college. And I think if you want to work overseas in ministry, that is probably even longer. Yeah. Then when they've left college, they might well get a job straight away, but probably if they do, it's still a training position. It's unlikely that most of my students would leave Ridley and lead a ministry. In the Anglican world, you probably more normally would be an associate minister rather than having a... Uh, a parish under your sole care so it's a long it's a long process i think and that's hard because our world wants us to do things quickly and to see results quickly and i just think that's unrealistic i think if you want to force the pace on people's training i think in the end you're cooking a, a minister who actually doesn't know how to care for others mm. they've missed some steps or they've missed some input so i think there's no there's no rush better to be well cooked well prepared than to try and take something out of the oven too soon and find that it's still a bit raw on the inside mm. but that's exactly countercultural that's exactly countercultural you all want to do things faster and quicker and take shortcuts. And I kind of get it. People might be coming to ministry later than they might have been 50 years ago and thinking about what it means to buy a house, get a mortgage, have a family. But in the end, a minister providing soul care to others, if they haven't themselves thought about how the soul works,
0: can damage people. You know, that's really interesting. I, fi- I, find my, I find that to be a bit of a tension because what we are doing with the Bonhopper House is much more like um, a slow cooker or, um, hmm. you know, I like to smoke meat. So I, you know, <laughs> I like to think about like you could throw a pork, you know, a pork shoulder in the oven at 450 and, and cook it in an hour or two. But it's it's going to be tough. And, and what we want is we want our leaders to be tender. Mm. You know, we don't want them to, um, to have a bad thing. We don't want them to taste bad to their people because they're tough. We, we want, you know, tender hearted, mm. uh, people who, so, so, you know, we, we, we <laughs> will have these conversations with other, uh, typically in our world, n- more in terms of, Thinking about internships, mm, mm. Um, and we've chosen to use apprenticeship as our primary category. But the truth is, what we're talking about is internships mm. or residential residencies. Um, and most most other churches or institutions, the timeline is very short. It's like do a six month residency or a one year internship. Mm-hmm. And so, oftentimes, when we're in these conversations about maybe consulting with them or helping kind of bounce ideas around Their their eyes sort of get big when we, when they say, how long are your internships? And we say, well, sometimes they go on for a really long time, mm-hmm. typically at least three or four years. Mm-hmm. Um, and so, so I really, I find that interesting. It does feel very countercultural, and I, the tension I feel is the same as you. Some we, I understand, certainly understand, um, the need to get, hmm. to get out into the world, to make money, to, to have a job, um, and not to just be a a forever like you know like I sure. joked, my model of theological training is maybe not the one to be emulated because I, I was an MDiv student for ten years and that's was maybe a little bit long.
2: Yes, well, it's why I like the Bonhoeffer House because it is thinking about holistic formation. That's really valuable. There's a mission society. Uh, in much of the Anglican world called the church Missionary society and in Australia at least they have very high expectations of people's preparation before they enter the program or before they assent elsewhere and actually the church Missionary society has one of the best uh, outcomes in terms of length of time that missionaries spend in the field mm. so I think I think there is the clear data for the the value of being well-prepared for long-term
0: ministry. That's good. That's good. So why don't uh, we move on to the next question I have? Why is theological training important? And a a second question related is who should pursue it? Who who, uh, should pursue either formal or informal theological training? And why is it important?
2: So I think... Theologic education, whether formal or informal, uh, is important because you're dealing with eternal things and people's souls and we need to think hard, learn significant lessons about how to do that well. I often use the picture, I'm not going to get into a plane unless I know the pilot has been well trained. Mm. There's just too much at stake. There's just too much at stake. The smallest mistakes can have enormous consequences. And I think that's the same with churches. I'm not going to get into I'm not going to attend a church or become a member of a church where I don't think the pastor has been trained to fly that plane. There's too much at stake. Our souls are precious commodities mm. and the consequences of making mistakes is really significant. Uh, that doesn't necessarily mean going to theological college or seminary or divinity school, but I see no harm in people if they don't want to be a pastor but want to run the youth group well or they want to provide a really thought through Christian witness in their workplace from doing a year's theological study or even more than that, perhaps if they can afford it. Like, I don't, I'm not saying that theological college is only for people who want to be pastors. By a long shot, not. But I think we do need to keep reminding ourselves of the importance for pastors of doing a degree, a, a degree program. I was going to say for three years, but it could be longer than three years if it's part time. That's okay. And I do think it's important to learn outside of your local church. So I'm committed to people doing apprentices, as it were, or internships, traineeships in the local church. But there's value, too, in pulling aside from your local church and learning in a way that's not just about getting program done this week, but learning to think from first principles. So there are lots of parts of the world where people are giving up on formal seminary theological college education, and just doing apprenticeships in local churches. And I get the practical value of that, but the danger is you're just learning how to run your church rather than standing back from your church and learning the principles that are going to help you, not just in this church, but in the next church, which is in a different part of the country, or in a different ministry in a different part of the world. And learning from first principles is just so important. My job isn't to teach people just the five top tips, that will expire in its usefulness in the next five seconds. My job is to help people think from first principles that they then can apply the gospel to different people in different moments in different countries. So I'm, I defend, I, I want to talk up the value of institutional theological
0: learning. That's excellent. I agree. And, and the idea of, as a matter of fact, um, uh, the idea of learning from people outside. So one of the things that's, again, a challenge to us with the Bonhoeffer House, because what we're trying to do is bring seminary and the local church more closely knitted together so that the seminary would support the ministry of the local church. And so that, um, so that there's a place for um, young leaders to be mentored and known and serve, uh, but there's a danger there of silo. Like every everything is within this one church, and so it's to support the the sometimes even just the the ministry of one person within the church, and so having some outside, especially you know most pastors are not. Um, Most pastors are not experts in any field. They're just generalists, right? Um, You know, jacks of all trade, but maybe masters of none. And so, uh, you know, it's helpful to have a master of a trade who can teach
2: principles. I think local pastors are often like a general practitioner, a doctor who can take any number of issues, but knows who to refer this particular health problem Mm. to. And so we'll know the experts who he or she can pass the patients along to, uh, and that's the case. And of course, pastors probably do have a little bit more expertise in how to handle the scriptures, but they probably have less expertise in how to think about ethics or how to think about history, church history. So they'll they'll
0: have some strong suits, but they're still generalists. That's basically. right. And and um, the cynic in me, which. It's there. There's a cynic in me, Reese, and, and uh, it, it questions whether or not that's even true that pastors being trained uh, <laughs> necessarily have more expertise in handling the scriptures. Um, hmm. But that's for another conversation. So let's move on. Uh, what do you see as some of the biggest challenges facing training institutions? You, you spoke to the importance of institutions for theological education and training. Uh, What do you see as some of the biggest challenges facing those institutions right now? So there's the financial angle.
2: It costs a lot for a student to undertake a three-year degree or an MDiv program. To what degree the burden for those financial needs falls to the seminary or falls to the individual student that's that's big mm. that's big the connection between the college the seminary and the local church uh, uh, Ridley has it a little easier I think than some because we're located within a denomination so the connections between in Melbourne where I teach Anglican churches and the seminary is is part of our DNA. But there are some seminaries where that won't be the case, especially larger seminaries in the U.S. that draw people in from lots of different states or cities, yeah. where they just don't know who the pastor is in that
0: city three hundred miles away. Yeah, I wonder too to that point. But there's the denominational um, clarity and direct direction with Ridley, and Melbourne is a is a massively large city. Um, um, but outside of Melbourne, it's it's maybe a little bit more centralized. So I wonder too where where at Southeastern w- people will travel for for a weekend class or a week class from you know five different states within you know five hours away or four hours away. Do you find that that the actual um, geography of Ridley College helps clarify those relationships or am I making that up? No, people
2: within Melbourne probably, have some connection with each other through denominations. Yeah. But we also have an online program that serves people outside of Melbourne in kind of rural places in Australia and overseas as well. So we do try and serve the church outside of Melbourne and and do that quite effectively, really.
0: So you financial challenges, you've got um, denominational challenges or challenges of, of um, clarity between the church and the, the theological training institution. Are there any other big challenges that you see right now? And how might that be different from, say, looking back five to ten years ago?
2: Well, the extra complication now is that most students... Or well, perhaps not most quite at Ridley, but a substantial number of students have a family, a partner, a husband, wife, and a family. Whereas 50 years ago, 60 years ago, people at Ridley were all single males. Hmm. And often the degree was built around them being single and living on campus, but now life is much more complicated. Melbourne's really big, 5 million people. So to get into college, people might have to travel two hours one way if they're coming across town, if the traffic's bad. So those are all pressures that wouldn't have existed 50 years
0: ago. I'm not quite so sure that it would be any different 10 years ago. What about, Do you know, have you noticed, like, where we are right now in the past, say... 36 to 48 months um, into covid um, you know so much of the kind of job economy has turned towards um, almost a placelessness we don't really have to rent a building anymore because we can meet on zoom H- has that affected things much at Ridley where there's a pressure to um, decentralize and just just be online just have you know, Zoom meetings or online classes?
2: Yeah. So I suspect that for some more flexibility would be attractive. Mind you, there are still a substantial number of students who recognize the value of face to face learning. I wonder whether it's still too soon to see how COVID plays out in terms of our offerings. At least in the short term, I think students are probably just keen to see each other again and be back on yeah. campus and 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 enjoy enjoy the conversation which is part of our theological formation. so we say it Ridley, look, a third of your learning will come from lectures, a third of your learning will come from books, and a third of your learning will come from conversations. Mm. Now it could be that you create opportunities for conversation if you're an online student or if you're a student who doesn't get to be on campus very often but it is a little bit easier on campus to encourage encourage those conversations just just on the on the point before jesse where you asked what in the last 10 years might have changed i think christian's status or respect in australia has diminished Rapidly in the last 10 years. So if you'd ask the average guy on the street 10, 20 years ago what they thought of a Christian, they'd probably say, holier than thou, do good as... Now if you ask the average guy on the street what do you think of a Christian, they'd probably say toxic, Mm. damaging.
0: That's Uh, interesting. So from being known for being overly moral to now being known for being immoral. Correct.
2: And... I think that impacts not necessarily the people who we do have at Ridley, but it impacts the people who might have thought about coming to Ridley or or undertaking theological education. Mm. Because I think there's just less social encouragement to do it. Yeah. Because then you're one of the bad guys to be a a leader in the church or a leader amongst Christians. And we've got to come to terms with what it means culturally to be the bad guys now i think in the u.s there might be some of that in some places but i think it's probably more established in more places in australia in terms of our
0: secularity i'm sure that's right yeah i mean i think um thinking about the kind of conversations that people have with me or have had with me uh and then uh, also the the folks who are in the Bonhopper house, typically at worst, there might be a concerned parent that's like, well, you want to do what, how much do pastors make? You know, are mm-hmm. we sure that's a good, good use of your, mm-hmm. you know how much I spent on your undergraduate? Now you want to <laughs> go get trained to be a pastor. Um, or maybe a head scratching kind of like, wait, you're going to do what? What's an MDiv a masters of divinity. What, what's the point of that? Mm-hmm. Um, but typically, at, you know, of course, I'm more in the kind of American South. And so there's probably not, not a whole lot of um, loss in terms of social capital if mm-hmm. someone chooses to go to seminary. Mm-hmm. But, it, but I imagine maybe it's coming. Mm. Um,
2: yes, I, I, sus- I suspect that's right. And there might be places in the U.S. where it's already, yeah, right. it's already What What I find shocking is that I meet Christian kids thinking about ministry and their Christian parents aren't supporting them Mm. for the very same reasons that that their education has cost a lot or thinking about job prospects and so on now there's plenty of jobs in ministry Uh, it's a it's supply driven rather than demand driven often but that christian parents would not be supportive i find that just
0: mind-blowing You'll find no argument from me. I I spent, you know, uh, uh, first 10 years of my ministry was working with a campus ministry. And um, the number one persuader against joining staff or interning with us was students' parents who almost always were Christian parents, you know. They just did did not want their kids to to go and uh, throw away. I'm putting air quotes around that their uh, their undergraduate degree and, and their life really. So,
2: but the the thing is, whatever your undergraduate degree was or is, God will recycle the skills of the insights you learned. That God won't let those skills or insights lie fallow. That you'll have learned things that will be useful in Christian ministry down the line. It's not a waste. There's there's so much that God has blessed you with in that education that can't be lost. And God's a very careful and wise uh, steward of resources Mm. in his household.
0: Amen. Good word. When you think about challenges down the road, five to 10 years, or maybe a little bit further, what do you anticipate? Is there anything more that you anticipate uh, coming up? You know, like, um, so for instance, um, are we going to have, um, be pressured into uh, providing a purely Metaverse seminary where there's no actual embodied presence between people. Um, is that something that would be, you know, a challenge? Well, there are already
2: churches that have decided no longer to meet, but only to be uh, a church online. So I've come across this just in the last six months or so. So if that's happening to churches, It wouldn't be surprising if that idea leaks into people's thinking about christian formation or christian uh, theological education i just think it's fundamentally wrong-headed that the incarnation of jesus christ teaches us that physicality and god god wants to occupy space and that uh life under god's rule involves people touching people people contacting people people rubbing up against other people Mm. and it there's value in theological education replicating to some degree the community life that churches face or will face i'm Jesse, I have no doubt you're right that that people will take away from COVID the idea that it's cheaper to do things all online, uh, and it is, right? Yeah, that's right. But, I mean, one, yeah, go ahead. But the but there's but sometimes it's the hard things that most need to be done.
0: Amen. Amen. You know. Um... I saw recently. This is someone who I don't anticipate you will have known, being that he's a Baptist from the middle of America. But um, oh, who was it at at uh, a in Midwestern Baptist? Uh, Jared Wilson posted something on some social media about how um, uh, online church cannot replace you know church in person. It's something simple like that. And he has just gotten dragged so hard from so many different. Is that different, right? Is that oh, right? yeah. And, um, you know, of course, to me, it seemed to be a pretty straightforward message. Um, and and thinking, um, you, you know, we, you're modeling here for me and for our listeners the importance of theological training and being able to reason from first principles rather than just um, kind of float off and trying to engage in a particular argument about um, the validity of online communication, you're trying to bring us back to God cared enough about um, space and time to take on human form and to incarnate. And certainly uh, the sun taking on flesh isn't primarily so that we can be reminded to have seminary in person. Sure, sure. There are a few steps of theological reasoning between <laughs> between that. And the next uh, but point. it but it doesn't it doesn't have nothing to say to the importance of being um, with each other to the degree that we can, of course. Uh, and I think that may be where nuance for us will be really important uh, when we think about theological training and and when we think about the church, because we may be able to say on the one hand, what a blessing it is, what a what a privilege it is to be able to in um, incorporates someone who's infirm and stuck at home and not able to be around people through media in ways that we couldn't have 10 or 20 years ago. And same way with um, say rural students who can still uh, participate at Ridley. And we might be able to say that's actually really a good thing that mm-hmm. technology has brought us mm-hmm. without throwing the baby out. Yeah, that's right. Yeah,
2: precisely. Oh, and even women in Melbourne who have young kids. They could study online and that it wouldn't be possible for them to come into college and, or less less possible, certainly. But the, the, the bigger point is a good one. We have to work out what the church is for before we can work out what theological education is for. Mm. That is, church is described and defined theologically in the scriptures. And it's from that that we derive are thinking about the nature of education for service in the church. Much like, I think, mentoring isn't described in those terms in the scriptures. But if you work out what the church is for, that's the foundation for working out what mentoring is about. They are are related. Mm. Uh, They're not free-floating items, but actually subsets or their meaning is derived
0: from the bigger, from the bigger category, I think. So, you know, you've addressed not just biggest challenges, but exciting opportunities um, in terms of being able to offer training to people who may be uh, separated by space, like in a rural area or far from a training institution, as well as opportunities for, say, young parents to be able to online view uh, lectures. Um, how can institutions maintain commitments to core core principles, to first things, while they adapt? So I'm thinking through, you know, maybe there's an institution that goes, well, people are far away from here, and we have the resources to provide online uh, training, but then what they end up doing, and, I, and this happens, of course, you and I know this happens. They pay one professor, probably an adjunct professor, a few thousand dollars to record a series of lectures, and then they send that out to, say, 10,000 students, charging all of those students money so that the seminary grows, and they're kind of taking advantage of, well, now this, we're not retaining excellent faculty, we're not, um, we're not you know, creating an environment for an embodied presence among our, our students we're just sort of using the media to try to get as many students in and pay our, you know faculty mm-hmm. as little as possible mm-hmm. we would say that that maybe is not a good that's not a good way mm-hmm. um, to address the challenges and so mm-hmm. for institutions that are trying to consider well how do I adapt without losing my soul do you have any advice any any thoughts there
2: yes I think the faculty who are employed, and are well qualified and have a a doctorate and so on, they should continue to have good exposure to students and connections to students and see their role both providing content but also providing care and personalised input. So I think colleges need to employ excellent faculty and I think that's, the most important thing in terms of the of the college's impact Mm. Uh, faculty who have good minds and big hearts and ministry experience where they can to join those three things together and and not to presume that the person who can do one of those things is can replace the guy who or the woman who's uh experience in all those three areas mm. so we need to make sure that the faculty remain the center of the college as it were not because we're not stu- serving students needs or students interests but we need to make sure that we're not we're not seeing finances the center of the college but continually thinking about graduate attributes and what goes towards producing those graduate attributes and i think uh Some colleges or seminaries will specialise in one area, will do Bible and or theology and or practical ministry, and I think colleges need to do all three and be examples of integration. Uh, And the integration is the hard work and it needs excellent people
0: to be able to achieve it. Mm. Excellent, and I might add, not as someone applying for any kind of faculty positions, but um, you know, uh, the way to retain excellent faculty is to continue to pay faculty well. So, so I do, yeah, I, sure. I do wonder, and and oh, and even to
2: give, uh, to be generous in sabbatical sabbaticals. Provisions. That's yep, right. Yep. Yes,
0: I do love. I just want to go on the record for any Ridley College administrators who are listening to say, I love the sabbaticals that Reese gets because it means I get to see him. We get to do this. You get to come to the States. We get to have you in the house in beautiful Radford, Virginia, which is kind of um, just a really wonderful, wonderful thing. So that's right. So retain excellent faculty, make that important. Of course, that brings up challenges for how to be faculty, kind of providing excellent faculty, caring for the needs of the students, sending out and training in uh, developing the right kinds of leaders into the into the local church, into the mission field, while all sorting out how to provide that in ways that are affordable to people, and one of the mm. things um, I'll speak to with that is, I think this is where the local church can really step in, you know, mm. uh, and 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 ministries like the Bonhoeffer House, where when we recruit students, um, and if you're listening and you're a potential student, we'd like to recruit you. We'd like an opportunity. Think about joining us. With the Bonhoeffer house. But really what we say is we, we don't have jobs to offer. You know, we like to help local churches provide apprenticeships. Uh, sometimes they are paid, but what we, what we can offer is we will help you, uh, go, go to seminary for free. We will help track down the scholarships and the, and the, um, uh, the grants that make that possible. We will try to get your local church. If they're in our Bonhoeffer house network, we, we wanna help them see the vision so that they will set aside their own scholarship money mm-hmm. uh, for their own students. And then we raise money for the, in the Bonhoeffer House for that so that, uh, because we recognize that's a challenge and we'd rather say, hey, come and be embodied at a place that provides excellent faculty um, for a long period of time so you can be developed. And we don't want, you know, so I think the church being able to step in and say, hey, we'd like to help take care of that so that the finances doesn't become such a um, mm-hmm. central decision-making for the institution. Mm-hmm. So uh, let me end with this question, Reese This has been fantastic. I uh, really appreciate your insights here and would love to ask you where you see excellent theological training happening. When you look around, um, this feel free to brag on Ridley College um, and anywhere else that you see where, it's just really, really good. And then what makes it excellent? So I think
2: in theological education, you need Bible taught, history theology taught, and ministry skills taught. And Ridley tries to do all three. And I think that's fantastic. Some colleges, seminaries don't attempt to do all three. They just attempt to do one or Mm. two. That's fine, but I I do think uh, we live in a world which doesn't value integration and having those three bands of study to some degree talking to each other, integrated with each other is really healthy. And there are lots of seminaries around the world that do that. That's really, really tremendous. Uh, I think there are advantages in being a seminary that's connected to a denomination because that builds in another level of accountability uh, as not free-floating. I think the Australian seminaries, Australian theological colleges do these kinds of things really well. They're just small compared to North American mm. terms. Uh, but so is our population and our church. It's... Uh, It's really important that seminary leaders don't just think about employing people who have high academic credentials. One, because in which case they'd never be able to employ the Lord Jesus. Uh, That is, I'm not trying to be flippant, but I am trying to say there's more to theological education than the academic credentials of the faculty. You want them to have academic credentials, but that's not what makes a good Mm. seminary professor, a theological college lecturer. Uh, And holding together all those things is really hard And, and different parts of the world will feel different pinch points. I do think too that the question isn't so much what makes an excellent college is, and the question is rather... What do you want to do after college, after seminary, Mm. and which college is going to help you get there? So if you want to work in Melbourne, I think doing seminary theological education in Melbourne is really good for you. That is because you're building networks, you're talking to people who are from different churches and different church backgrounds and learning how to find in those brothers and sisters colleagues and peers in ministry. So I don't think the question is a neutral question, what's Mm. just the best college. To some degree, you're asking the question, what's best for me if I want to work in that country or this city or in that parachurch ministry? So that relativizes things just a little, I think.
0: Excellent. So, you know, the idea of of thinking about integration and between both um, those three areas, as well as between denominations and the local church and the seminary, and then thinking about uh, what what training program or institution will best prepare you for what it is that you feel called to do, Uh, that that calling has, you know, ideally been Uh, confirmed Hmm. and by by an external source in the local church that's what we take into mind when we think about who's doing excellent theological training it's happening at ridley college it's happening at the bonhopper house in southeastern and uh it's happening through you and your ministry reese thanks so much for joining me and uh look forward to having you on again it's a pleasure wonderful thanks jesse the other side we're on the other side we're on the other side friendos thank you for uh and is is me saying friendos eventually going to get really eventually i say (laughs) get really it might already be
1: grading but you know what it makes it's a confidence booster for us okay
0: okay that's good (laughs) and soon we'll have the shirts and the hats and and the gear so um holly i'm interested in you know i got to have this interview with reese we were down in birmingham alabama uh for a visit at Beeson Divinity School, where uh, our next guest, Dr. Doug Sweeney, is the uh, the dean or the kind of the president of the Divinity School, and uh, we were down there for a visit, and uh, and so I've I got to have the interview. I've listened to it, so I'm curious on some of your takeaways from that.
1: Yeah, I love this interview. Um, one of the first things that stuck out to me was at the beginning of y'all's conversation um, when you guys were talking about leadership training, when Reese was actually just explaining what he does, but um, he talked about how leadership training, you don't you don't see the fruit of your labor for a bit. And yeah, um, yeah uh, he, he talked about the number 10 years. Do you want to talk about that a little more?
0: Yeah, so um, I, I thought that was... <coughs> one of my favorite parts of our time together, and uh, in some ways was, um, so there was one part that was challenging where, where Reese was talking about the sort of, um, you know, if, uh, if we go only in the direction of apprenticeships, uh, local church-based apprenticeships, that we lose sort of outside voices, and, and particularly specialists, right, like who can, who can train us to think in terms of first things and think theologically, and that was challenging because a lot of what we do with the Bonhoeffer House is apprenticeship and residency based. But um, we are trying to sort of uh, bridge the gap and and include both things together. But the part that was really encouraging, I think, was the the duration. You know, mm-hmm. like um, when I talk to someone about what the Bonhoeffer House is in terms of training and, and um, I will often talk about how we're like we're like the crockpot of of yeah. uh, training future leaders in and for the church. Um, and we, we honestly, we do think too much of what has passed for um, acceptable training practices are like microwave training practices mm-hmm. where you just kind of pop it in there and you, you can heat it up. But like Reese said, sometimes it's still raw in the middle. So uh, yeah, that 10-year idea, you know, it, it's it was affirming. It's a little bit like... Um, uh, uh, a stark reminder that uh, it takes time to even see, right. yeah. um, you know, the effects.
1: Yeah. The the other thing kind of on that, too, um, when you guys were talking about how some people might come into uh, formalized theological training later on and how um, sometimes that can feel frustrating if you've gone through education in another way sense and have degrees and um yeah talking it reese talking about how god he he said this um god will recycle your skills Mm -hmm. and insights and then he also said i loved this he said god is a careful and wise steward of resources in his household you know thinking about say say you get um an engineering degree and then five years later or 10 years later or whatever you're, you decide, nope, this isn't the direction I want to go. I want to go in a different direction. Um, in, in try seminary God is not, he's not wasteful with the skills, the knowledge. Um, he's not wasteful with anything because he's all knowing and divine. Um, but yeah, that was just an encouragement to hear that and to think about, um, yeah. Think about our people.
0: Yeah. Yeah. That's we were talking about how um, how often uh, parents of uh, sort of Christian student, Christian parents of Christian students uh, are not excited about their their children going into ministry. And also what you what you mentioned, you know, maybe your mid career, you've de- yeah. got this career, you've got this education and you're like, well, what, what did I waste all that time? That was really encouraging. You know that whole conversation about um, one of the challenges with the future of theological training is that um, we're we're kind of moving in, in Melbourne and in in Australia the coast of Australia is already there certainly parts of America are but are moving um, into a, a place where the culture is more negative about. Uh, Christianity yeah. about pastors, you know, he, he we talked about how um uh, we it wasn't very long ago that, that Christians were sort of mocked for being overly moral mm-hmm. and now we're mocked for being or not mocked, we're you know, now now the it's the the shift has happened where our morality has become immorality yeah. to the culture. Yeah. You know, I uh, recently there's been a big a big I don't know I don't know if big is the right word, uh, uh, to do a big kind of mi- mix up over or, or uh, uh, a <laughs> battle happening over Tim Keller mm-hmm. and winsomeness and whether or not, you know, James Wood wrote something for First Things that was based on Aaron Wren, who wrote something about how uh, we're, we've moved from a uh, neutral to a negative culture in mm-hmm. terms of the posture towards Christianity. And uh, so when I was re-listening to this, because, of course, we, we recorded this back in January before any of that, that stuff was happening um, in this sort of, um, I don't know, what the, the elite Christian hmm. cultural engagement world. Uh, it was interesting to re-listen and go, okay, we, recently, we were already having this conversation because in Melbourne, the, they're so much further down the line in terms of yeah. uh, um, the challenges of living in a, in a negative world. And so, yeah, that, anyway, that was interesting to think about that the challenges moving in into our world in America. And in particular, we've been a little bit insulated against that in, say, Southwest Virginia or Virginia, North Carolina, where a lot of our work takes place, but that yeah. negative world is coming. Now, uh, one of the other things that I found to be really encouraging was um, Reese's... Uh, Discussion about the implications of the incarnation of Christ for theological training, Um, you know, which is a a conviction that already had. So it was affirming, but um, that you know, the temptations to go completely, say, meta or digital or virtual, need to be tempered with the reality that God did not stay virtual, right? I mean, God did not. God came and actually became enfleshed and embodied. And um, and that, that has implications for how we do life together, you know, and how we do life together has implications for how we ought to be, be trained.
1: Yeah, I had, I you know, have thought a lot about God as <clears throat> relational and being a triune God, um, Father, Son, and Spirit. But I, I hadn't really thought about the fact that God... Y- you know, what you said, he cared enough about space and time to become human. Um, and how much that should, that should influence us toward being in space and spending time with people like he did, mm. you know, um, he was intentional. You're, <laughs> I love that D- he didn't stay virtual. We should Tweet that if if we tweeted.
0: <laughs> yeah, I mean, I, it, it may be heresy. I don't. I'm not sure he was ever virtual, but uh, he didn't remain unembodied. Yes, exactly. Uh, you know, um, or maybe he didn't remain purely spiritual. You know, uh, if Michael was here, he would try to trigger me on space. So I'm going to allow him virtually, and that's ironic to 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 trigger me on. Uh, you know, as I re-listened to this interview, I was thinking about how much it drives me nuts when people talk about spaces that aren't space. In, in other words, like um, you know, well, in the in the white evangelical space or in the um, you know the, this kind of cultural space, and I just it like it it just gets me it gets me so angry. If this space, you can't actually live in that space. It's not, if it's a virtual space, yeah. it's not as, I want, people need to find a different word for this. So if you're out there and you're smart and you use space to mean things that aren't space, um, lead the way in finding another word for this, <laughs> right? There's no meta space. Right. I don't know what it is. Yeah. But anyway. There's gotta so, be a better word. So, uh, cause I, I want to reclaim space means space.
2: Yeah.
1: Tweet
0: that. Yeah. (laughs) Uh, So, and I think that has implications for how we do theological training, that we do it in actual space, not in uh, virtual space that isn't space. So Space means space. Space means space. Hashtag. Feels like a
1: good place to end, Jesse. (laughs) I think
0: that um, I'm clearly just an old fogey who's yelling (laughs) at young people to get off my lawn. But uh, please get off my lawn with that space talk. Uh, <laughs> we, gotta, space. we need to do theological training in person, embodied. Yeah. Uh, certainly, I think Reese and other, like uh, Dr. Liederbach, we're talking about how digital um, training opportunities using things like Zoom and uh, recording through, through the Internet opens up all kinds of doors into even closed countries, which I think is something that we should evaluate and, uh, celebrate. And, uh, Reese talking also about opportunities for people who are in more rural situations or say lay people, a wife or a husband who isn't going to quit their job, but wants some training, I mean, I I think that there are blessings to that, but, um, but let's fight for real space and time in person together. So thank you to Dr. Reese Pazant, our friend who we hope, uh, one day we'll just get him to just live here. Yeah. And, um, and be a Bonhoeffer House theologian in residence. Reese, I'll raise the money if you'll move here. Uh, All right, next up, we've got Dr. Doug Sweeney from Beeson Divinity School. Uh, And so uh, we're excited about that. We're excited for you to tune in. Thank you for tuning in to this episode of The Hammer and Quill, Season 2, Episode 10, a conversation with Dr. Reese Bezant about the future of theological training. If you haven't already, please subscribe or follow the Hammer and Quill on your favorite podcast app and write us a quick review, letting us and others know how we are doing. We love to have your five-star reviews and your recommendations. If you have any questions or ideas for future podcasts, please write in at info at bonhoefferhouse.com. Until next time, peace. Peace.
3: I got more fire in my belly than not to I'm happy as a clam and I think you forgot to Tell me where my enemies are Cause when I look around I know whats to be found I guess they're counting down Every single hour to the minute To the second they have me second Guessing if they even present If they ever step up to me I'ma give them all a gift I'll say sorry in advance And I'm going to the fifth And I don't need a fifth to hit the top of your wish list Every time I pivot I'ma leave your ankles twisted Listen, I'm not feeling listless this, that bliss, bliss, I don't feel indifferent Already left the runway And I barely had assistance Went to my back Left the jokers reacting Now higher powers laughing with me They don't know what happened Up so high that your size is a fraction And what goes up must come down But now I'm really feeling like that paradigm shifted The feeling is addictive Anti-gravity, i bet it's never lifted And when I hit the top It tastes like blue that you're kissing Listen, the clips. I'm on the lip Everything is going on without a hitch. Skip the clips. I'm on a list. Everything is going on without a hitch. Skip the clips. I'm on a list. Everything is going on without a hitch.